Ja, ja, nu går jag. Jag såg oss. Jag älskar. För jag är stryklig. Och jag är strådd. Jag säger. Jag vill jag. Jag såg oss. Nu går jag. Welcome to the 374th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we'll continue with part 29 of South with Scott by Edward Evans, and then we have part 5 of The Boats of Glen Carrick by William Hope Hodgson. Let's head to that white continent. Here are three specimen diary pages, extracted from Campbell's journey. April the 9th. Warmer today. We saw a small seal on a floe, but were unable to reach him. The bay remains open still. On still days, a thin film of ice forms, but blows out as soon as the wind comes up. In these early days, before we had perfected our cooking and messing arrangements, a great part of our day was taken up with cooking and preparing the food. But later on, we got used to the ways of a blubber stove, and things went more smoothly. We had landed all our spare paraffin from the ship, and this gave us enough oil to use the primus for breakfast, provided we melted the ice over the blubber fire the day before. The blubber stove was made of an old oil tin cut down. In this we put some old seal bones taken from a carcass we found on the beach. A piece of blubber, skewered on a marlin spike and held over the flame, dripped oil on the bones and fed the fire. In this way we could cook hoosh nearly as quickly as we could on the primus. Of course, the stove took several weeks of experimenting before we reached this satisfactory state. With certain winds, we were nearly choked with a black, oily smoke that hurt our eyes and brought on much of the same symptoms as snow blindness. We took it in turns to be cook and messman working in pairs. Abbott and I, Levick and Browning, Priestley and Dickerson. And thus each has one day on in three. The duties of the cooks are to turn out at seven and cook and serve the breakfast, the others remaining in their bags for the meal. Then we all have a siesta until 10.30, when we turn out for the day's work. The cook starts the blubber stove and melts blubber for the lamps. The messman takes an ice axe and chips frozen seal meat in the passage by the light of a blubber lamp. A cold job, this, and trying to the temper as scraps of meat fly in all directions and have to be carefully collected afterwards. The remainder carry up the meat and the blubber, or look for seals. By 5pm, all except the cooks are in their bags, and we have supper. After supper, the cooks melt ice for the morning, prepare breakfast, and clear up. May 7th. A blizzard with heavy drift has been blowing all day, so it's now a good job that we got the penguins. We've got the roof on the shaft now, but all these blizzards, the entrance is buried in snow, and we have a job to keep the shaft clear. Priestley has found his last year's journal and reads some to us every evening. From now till the end of the month, strong gales again reduced our outside work to a minimum, and most of our energies were directed to improving our domestic routine. We have now a much better method for cutting up the meat for the hoosh, Until now, we had to take the frozen joints and hack them in pieces with an ice axe. We've now fixed up an empty biscuit tin on a bamboo tripod over the blubber fire. The small pieces of meat as we put into this thaw. The larger joints hang from the bamboo. In this way, they thaw sufficiently in the 24 hours to cut up with a knife, 
and we find this cleaner and more economical. We celebrated two special occasions on this month, my wedding day on the 10th, and the anniversary, to use a paradox, of the commissioning of the hut on the 17th. And each time the commissariat officer relaxed his hold to the extent of ten raisins each. Levick is having his biscuit to see how it feels to go with cereals for a week. He also wants to have one real good feed at the end of the week. His idea is that by eating more blubber, he will not feel the want of the biscuit very much. July 4th. Southerly wind, with snow, noise of pressure at sea, and the ice to the bay is breaking up. Evidently there is wind coming, and the sea ice which has recently formed will go out again like the rest. It's getting a rather serious question as to whether there will be any sea ice for us to get down onto on the coast. I only hope that to the south of the Drygalaski ice tongue, where the southeasterlies are the prevailing winds, we shall find the ice has held. Otherwise it will mean that we shall have to go over the plateau, climbing up by Mount Larsen, and coming down the Farah Glacier, and if we so cannot start until November and the food will be a problem. We made a terrible discovery in the hoosh tonight, a penguin's flipper. Abbott and I prepared the hoosh. I can remember using a flipper to clean the pot with, and in the dark Abbott cannot have seen it when he filled the pot. However, I assured everyone that it was a fairly clean flipper, and certainly the hoosh was a good one. In this diary are some remarkable entries. Attempts were made to vary the flavour of the hooshes. One entry is very queer reading. It related how, after trying one or two other expedients, Levick used a mustard plaster in the pemmican and the seal stew. The unanimous decision was that it must have been a linseed poultice, for mustard could not be tasted at all yet the flavour of linseed was most distinct. Campbell says that midwinter day gave them seasonable weather, pitch dark with wind and a smothering drift outside. The men awoke early and were so eager and impatient for their full ration on this special occasion that they could not remain in their sleeping bags, but turned out to cook a full hoosh breakfast for the first time for many weeks. That evening they repeated the hoosh and augmented it by cocoa with sugar in it, and then four citric acid and two ginger tabloids. The day concluded with a smoke and a sing-song, a little tobacco having been put by for the event. Soon after midwinter day, a heavy snowstorm blocked the igloo entrance completely. In consequence, the air became so bad that the primer stove went out and the lights would not burn. The inmates had to dig their way out to avoid being suffocated, this impoverishment of air had already happened through the same cause on other occasions, so the flickering and going out of the lamps warned immediately of the danger, and a watch was set. Normally the chimney would have served, but this itself was buried under the snow until built up afresh. The winter passed in dismal hardship, and even when the rare spells of fine weather occurred, the party dared not to venture far afield in their meagre, oil-saturated clothing. Severe frostbite would have spelt disaster. What the place must have looked like by moonlight, I hate to think. By daylight, with sunshine, it looked bad enough, but from Levick's description it looked when the moon was shining through the storm cloud, like an inferno, with its lugubrious ridges, its inky shadows and wicked ice gleams. The odd figures of the blubber-smeared, grimy men added the Dante touch. 
the sun came back at last, and with it the party's spirits rose considerably. They indulged in bets and jokes at one another's expense. Browning and Dickerson were undoubtedly the wittiest, and the the fish supper bet is worth inclusion. Short said, these two started an argument on the name of a certain public house situated in Portsmouth Hard. One said by name, one argued another, until Dr. Levick was invited to settle the dispute by arbitration, the loser to stand the winner a fish supper. Eventually Browning was adjudicated to be correct, and Dickerson, in a fit of generosity, shouted, All right, old man, and for every fish you eat, I'll stand you a quart of beer. Righto. The only fish I cares for is white bait, replied Browning. Towards the end of the winter, owing to the unusual diet, sickness set in in the shape of enteritis. Browning suffered dreadfully but always remained cheerful. The ravages of the illness weakened the party sadly, and details are too horrible to write about. Suffice it that the party lost control of their organs, a circumstance that rendered existence in their wintering place a nightmare of privation. Preparations were made for the party's departure in the spring, and the sledges were overhauled. A depot of geological specimens was established and marked by a bamboo. A curious ailment developed itself, which was named Igloo Back, from constant bending in the low-roofed igloo. It was due to the stretching of the ligaments around the spine, and was a painful thing for the cave-dwellers. Campbell and his companions started for Cape Evans on September the 30th. Progress was slow and the party was weak, but thanks to their grit and to Campbell's splendid leadership, the northern party got all through to winter quarters alive. Browning had to be carried on the sledge part of the way, but fortunately they picked up one of Griffith Taylor's depots and the biscuit found here quite altered Browning's condition. Poor Campbell was glad to get his party out of the dirt and dark of the igloo, but they were so weak that they could only march a mile from the first day. However, the sledging ration contained good foodstuffs compared to what they had eaten for weeks previously. And, oh, wise precaution, Campbell had deposited a small store of spare wind clothing and woollen underclothes against the journey over the sea to Cape Evans. This he issued on leaving that awful igloo, and the luxury of getting into dry, clean clothing after the greasy rags they discarded was indescribable. For nine months they'd worn those dirty garments without a change. The second day homeward at most gave five miles, but although tired out the party were in good spirits at leaving the dirt and squalor of the hut behind. They were making their way south along the coast, sledging over the Piedmont. Shortly after starting the company were faced with an enormous crevasse, but this was safely negotiated by means of a snow bridge 175 paces across. Pace gradually lengthened and strengthened, and on 12th of October 11 miles were covered, and on Camping Erebus and Mount Melbourne were both in sight. I do not propose to write a description of this journey back. It was not so dangerous as others had been, because seals and emperor penguins were met with along the route, and so they ran no risk of starving. But they ran a great risk of losing Browning, who caused the doctor the gravest concern. They laboured home, however and the leader's diary for one red letter and two black letter days must be included here, for they do explain themselves. October 29. Turned out at 4.30am. A fine day, 
but a bank of cloud to the south and a cold westerly wind. A two hours' march brought us to Cape Roberts, where I saw through my glasses a bamboo stuck on the top of the cape. Leaving the sledges, Priestley and I climbed to the cape, when we found a record left by the Western Party last year before they were picked up, and giving their movements, while nearby was a depot of provisions they had left behind. We gave such a yell, the others ran up the slope at once. It seemed almost too good to be true. We found two tins of biscuits, one slightly broached, and a small bag each of raisins, tea, cocoa, butter, and lard. There were also clothes, diaries, specimens from Granite Harbour, and I decided to camp here and have a day off. Dividing the provisions between the two tents, we soon had hoosh going and such a feed of biscuit, butter and lard that we'd not had for nine months, and we followed this up with a sweet, thick cocoa. After this we killed and cut up a seal, as we're getting short of meat and there is every prospect of a blizzard coming on. Levick and Abbott saw a desperate fight between two bull seals today. They gashed each other right through the skin and blubber until they were bleeding badly. We had another hoosh and more biscuit and lard in the evening, and then we turned into our bags and, quite torpid with food, discussed our plans on arriving at Cape Evans. We'd quite decided we should find no one there, for we believed the whole party had been blown north in the ship while trying to reach us. Still discussing plans, we fell asleep. What with news from the main party, and food, although both were a year old, it was the happiest day since we last saw the ship. I awoke in the night, finished off my share of the butter and most of the lard, and then dozed off again. November 6. Another fine day. We marched until 1pm when our sledge broke down, the whole runner coming off. As we were only one mile from Hut Point, I camped. Priestley and Dickerson and I walked in to look for news and get another sledge, as I was sure some would be there. As we neared the point, we noticed fresh tracks of mule and dogs. I pointed them out to Priestley and said, I hope there's nothing wrong with the pole party, as I do not like the look of these. He said, No more than do I. We ran up to the hut and found a letter from Atkinson to the commanding officer Terra Nova. I opened this and learnt the sad news of the loss of the polar party. The names of the party were not given, and finding Atkinson in charge of the search party which had started, I was afraid two units or eight men were lost. Finding a sledge only slightly damaged, I took that back to camp, getting back there about 5pm. We were all rather tired so instead of starting straight on to Camp Evans, we had supper and went to sleep. Before turning in, we made a depot of the broken sledge, all rock specimens, clothes and food, so as to travel light to Cape Evans. I was anxious to get there as soon as possible, as I thought there was a chance that there might be one or two mules, or enough dogs to enable me to follow the search party. It had been a great disappointment for us to have missed them by a week, as we were all anxious to join in the search. November 7. 4 a.m. A lovely morning. After a hasty breakfast, we were off, arriving at Camp Evans at 5 p.m. We found no one at home, but a letter on the door of the hut gave us all the news and the names of the lost party. Very soon, Debenham and Archer returned, giving us a most hearty welcome, and no one can realise what it meant to us to see new faces and to be home after our long winter. 
Our clothes, letters, etc. had been landed from the ship, and we were able to read our home letters, which we'd only time to glance at in the ship in February. Archer provided a sumptuous dinner that night, and we sailed into it in a way that made Debenham hold his breath. A bath and a change of clothes completed the transformation. And now for the fifth part of The Boats of the Glen Carrick. Chapter 5. The Great Storm. Now, as I've said, we came at last in safety to the open sea, and for a time had some degree of peace, though it was long ere we threw off all the terror which the land of lonesomeness had cast over our hearts. And one more matter there is regarding that land, which my memory recalls. It will be remembered that George had found certain wrappers upon which there was writing. Now in the haste of our leaving he had given no thought to take them with him, yet a portion of one he found within his side pocket of his jacket, and it ran somewhat thus. But I hear my lover's voice wailing in the night, and I go to find him, for my loneliness is not to be borne. May God have mercy upon me. And that was all. For a day and a night we stood out from the land towards the north, having a steady breeze to which we set our lug sails, and so made a very good way, the sea being quiet, though with a slow lumbering swell from the southward. It was on the morning of the second day of our escape that we met with the beginnings of our adventure into the silent sea, the which I am about to make as clear as I am able. The night had been quiet, and the breeze steady until near on to dawn, when the wind slacked away to nothing, and we lay there waiting, perchance the sun should bring the breeze with it, and this it did, but no such wind as we did desire. For when the morning came upon us we discovered all that part of the sky to be full of a fiery redness, which presently spread away down to the south, so that an entire quarter of the heavens was, as it seemed to us, a mighty arc of blood-coloured fire. Now, at the sight of these omens, the boatswain gave orders to prepare the boats for the storm which we had reason to expect, looking for it in the south, for it was from that direction that the swell came rolling upon us. With this intent, we roused out so much heavy canvas as the boats contained, for we had gotten a bolt and a half from the hulk in the creek, also the boat covers, which we could lash down to the brass studs under the gunwales of the boats. Then in each boat we mounted the whaleback, which had been stowed along the tops of the thwarts, also its supports, lashing the same to the thwarts below the knees. Then we laid two lengths of the stout canvas the full length of the boat over the whaleback, overlapping and nailing them to the same, so that they sloped away down over the gunwales upon each side, as though they had formed a roof to us. Here, while some stretched canvas nailing its lower edges to the gunwales, others were employed in lashing together the oars and the mast, and to this bundle they secured a considerable length of new three-and-a-half-inch hemp rope, which we'd brought away from the hulk along with the canvas. The rope was then passed over the bows and in through the painter ring, and thence to the forward thwarts, where it was made fast, and we gave attention to parcel it with odd strips of canvas against the danger of chaff. And the same was done in both of the boats, for we could not put our trust in the painters, besides which they had not sufficient length to secure safe and easy riding. Now by this time we had the canvas nailed down to the gunwales around our boat, 
and after which we spread the boat cover over it, lacing it down to the brass studs beneath the gunwale, and so we had all the boat covered in, save a place in the stern where a man might stand to wield the steering oar, for the boats were double-bowed, and in each boat we made the same preparation, lashing all movable articles and preparing to meet so great a storm as might fill the heart with terror. But the sky cried to us that it would be no light wind, and further, the great swell from the south grew more huge with every hour that passed, though as yet it was without virulence being slow and oily and black against the redness of the sky. Presently we were ready, and had cast over the bundle of oars and the mast which was to serve as our sea anchor, and so we lay, waiting. It was at this time that the boatswain called over to Josh certain advice with regard to which lay before us, and after that the two of them sculled their boats a little apart for there might be a danger of their being dashed together by such violence of the storm. And so came a time of waiting, with Josh and the boatswain each of them at the steering oars, and the rest of us stowed away under the coverings. From where I crouched near the boatswain I had sight of Josh away upon our port side. He was standing up, black as a shape of night against the mighty redness, when the boat came to the foamless crowns of the swells, and then he was gone from sight in the hollows between. Midday had come and gone, and we made shift to eat so good a meal as our appetites would allow, for we had no knowledge of how long it might be ere we should have a chance of another, if indeed we ever had need to think more of such. And then in the middle part of the afternoon we heard the first cryings of the storm, a far distant moaning rising and falling most solemnly. Presently all the southern part of the horizon, so high up maybe as of seven or ten degrees, was blotted out by a great black wall of cloud, over which the red glare came down upon the great swells, as though from the light of some vast and unseen fire. It was about this time I observed that the sun had the appearance of a great full moon, being pale and clearly defined, and seeming to have no warmth nor brilliancy. And this, as may be imagined, seemed most strange to us, the more so because of the redness in the south and the east. And all this while, the swells increased most prodigiously, though without making broken water, yet they informed us that we had done well to take so much precaution, for surely they were raised by a very great storm. A little before evening, the moaning came again, and then a space of silence, after which there rose a very sudden bellowing, as of wild beasts, and then once more silence. About this time, the boatswain making no objection, I raised my head above the cover, until I was in a standing position, for, until now, I had taken no more than occasional peeps, and I was very glad of the chance to stretch my limbs, for I'd grown mightily cramped, and having stirred the sluggishness of my blood, I sat down again, but in such a position that I could see every part of the horizon without difficulty. Ahead of us, that is, to the south, I saw now the great wall of cloud that had risen some further degrees, and there was something less of the redness, though indeed what there was left of it was sufficiently terrifying, for it appeared to crest the black cloud like foam red, seeming it might be as though a mighty sea made ready to break over the world. Towards the west, the sun was sinking behind a curious red-tinted haze, which gave it the appearance of a dull red disc. 
To the north, seeming very high in the sky, were some flecks of cloud lying motionless, and a very pretty rose colour. And here I may remark that all the sea to the north of us appeared as a very ocean of dull red fire, though as might be expected the swells coming up from the south against the light were so many exceeding great hills of blackness. It was just after I had made these observations that we heard again the distant roaring of the storm, and I know not how to convey the exceeding terror of that sound. It was as though some mighty beast growled far down towards the south, and it seemed to make very clear to me that we were but two small craft in a very lonesome place. And even while the roaring lasted, I saw a sudden light flare up, as it were from the edge of the southern horizon. It had somewhat the appearance of lightning, yet vanished not immediately, as is the want of lightning. And more, it had not been my experience to witness such spring up out of the sea, but rather down from the heavens. Yet I have little doubt but that it was a form of lightning, for it came many times after this, so that I had chance to observe it minutely. And frequently as I watched, the storm would shout at us in a most fearsome manner. And then, when the sun was low upon the horizon, there came to our ears a very shrill screaming voice, most penetrating and distressing. And immediately afterwards the boatswain shouted out something in a hoarse voice, and commenced to sway furiously upon the steering oar. I saw his stare fixed upon a point a little on our larboard bow, and perceived that in that direction the sea was all blown up into vast clouds of dust like froth, and I knew that the storm was upon us. Immediately afterwards, a cold blast struck us, but we suffered no harm, for the boatswain had gotten the boat bows on by this. The wind passed us, and there was an instant of calm and now all the air above us was full of a continuous roaring, so very loud and intense that I was like to be deafened. To windward I perceived an enormous wall of spray bearing down upon us, and I heard again the shrill screaming, the pierce through the roaring. And then the boatswain whipped in his oar under the cover, and reaching forward drew the canvas aft, so that it covered the entire boat, and he held it down against the gunwale upon the starboard side, shouting in my ear to do likewise upon the larboard. Now had it not been for this forethought on the part of the boatswain, we'd have all been dead men, and this may be the better believed when I explain that we felt the water falling upon the stout canvas overhead. Tons and tons, though so beaten to froth as to lack solidity in sink and crush us. I've said felt, for it would make it so clear as may be, here once and for all, that so intense was the roaring and the screaming of the elements, there could be no sound of to have penetrated to us. No, not the pealing of mighty thunders, and so for the space, it may be like a full minute, the boat quivered and shook most vilely, so that she seemed like to have been shaken to pieces, and from a dozen places between the gunwale and the covering canvas the water spurted in upon us. And here, one other thing I would make mention of. During that minute, the boat had ceased to rise and fall upon the great swell, and whether this was because the sea was flattened by the first rush of the wind, or that the excess of the storm held her steady, I'm unable to tell, and can put down only that which we felt. In a little, the first fury of the blast being spent, the boat began to sway from side to side, 
as though the wind blew now upon the one beam and now upon the other. And several times we were stricken heavily with the blows of solid water. But presently this ceased, and we returned once again to the rise and fall of the swell, only that now we received a cruel jerk every time the boat came upon the top of a sea, and so a while passed. Towards midnight, as I could judge, there came some mighty flames of lightning, so bright that they lit the boat up through the double cover of canvas. Yet no man of us heard aught of the thunder, for the roaring of the storm made all else a silence. And so to the dawn, after which, finding that we were still by the mercy of God possessed of our lives, we made shift to eat and drink after which we slept. And now, being extremely wearied by the stress of the past night, I slumbered through many hours of the storm, waking at some time between noon and evening. Overhead, as I lay looking upwards, the canvas showed of a dull leadenish colour, blackened completely at whiles by the dash of spray and water, and so presently, having eaten again, and feeling that all things lay in the hands of the Almighty, I came once more upon sleep. Twice through the following night I was wakened by the boat being hurled upon her beam ends by the blows of the sea, but she righted easily, and took scarce any water, the canvas proving a very roof of safety, and so the morning came again. Being now rested, I crawled after to where the boatswain lay, the noise of the storm lulling odd instants, and shouted in his ear to know whether the wind was easing at whiles. To this he nodded, whereat I felt a most joyful sense of hope pulse through me, and ate such food as could be gotten with a very good relish. In the afternoon the sun broke out suddenly, lighting up the boat most gloomily through the wet canvas, yet a very welcome light it was, and bred in us a hope that the storm was near to breaking. In a little the sun disappeared, but presently it coming again, the boatswain beckoned to me to assist him, and we removed such temporary nails as we had used to fasten down the after part of the canvas, and pushed back the covering a space sufficient to allow our heads to go through into the daylight. On looking out, I discovered the air to be full of spray, beaten as fine as dust, and then before I could note aught else, a little gout of water took me in the face with such force as to deprive me of breath, so that I had to descend beneath the canvas for a little while. As soon as I was recovered, I thrust forth my head again, and now I had some sight of the terrors around us. As each huge sea came towards us, the boat shot up to meet it, right up to its very crest, and there, for the space of some instants, we would seem to be swamped in a very ocean of foam, boiling up on each side of the boat to the height of many feet. Then, the sea passing from under us, we would go swooping dizzily down the great black froth-splotched back of the wave, until the oncoming sea caught us up most mightily. Odd whiles, the crest of a sea would hurl forward before we had reached the top, and though the boat shot upward like a veritable feather, yet the water would swirl right over us, and we would draw in our heads most suddenly. In such cases, the wind flapping the cover down so soon as our hands were removed, and apart from the way in which the boat met the seas, there was a very sense of terror in the air. The continuous roaring and the howling of the storm, the screaming of the foam as the frothy summits of the briny mountains hurled past us, and the wind that tore the breath out of our weak human throats, these are things scarce to be conceived.
Presently we drew in our heads, the sun having vanished again and nailed down the canvas once more, and so prepared for the night. From here on until the morning, I have very little knowledge of any happenings, for I slept much of the time, and for the rest there was little to know, cooped up beneath the cover. Nothing save the interminable thundering swoop of the boat downwards, and then the halt and hurl upwards, and the occasional plunges and surges to larboard or starboard occasioned, I can only suppose by the indiscriminate might of the sea. I would make mention here, how that I had little thought all of this while of the peril of the other boat, and indeed I was so very full of our own that it is no matter at which to wonder. However, as it proved, and as this is a most suitable place in which to tell it, the boat that held Josh and the rest of the crew came through the storm with safety, though it was not until many years afterwards that I had the good fortune to hear from Josh himself how that, after the storm, they were picked up by a homeward-bound vessel and landed in the port of London. And now, to our own happenings. And that's all for today. Except to remind you about my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a Napoleonic memoir called Recollections of a Peninsula Veteran, also Lost on Venus by Edgar Rice Burroughs, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the US's decision-making on the war in Vietnam. Please, Go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrick, F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Until next time. <laughs>